Hey, there I am. <laughs> Sorry about that, folks. Welcome, welcome to today's Law of Self-Defense show. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. We have a lot of streaming going on today. Yep, looks like YouTube is working correctly. Looks like Rumble is working correctly. Let's see. Law of Self-Defense. Members only page working correctly. And I think I should be streaming to Twitter. Indeed. Holy cow. I'm streaming on Twitter. I can't believe it. All right. Very, very exciting. Four streams going out at the same time. It's like uh, just like the prom. All right, folks. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. I really appreciate you being here. As usual, uh, this is going to be a bifurcated show. So the first part of the show is going to be uh, simul-streamed on a whole bunch of different platforms, uh, YouTube, Rumble, Twitter, and, of course, for our Law of Self-Defense members on their dashboard. Uh, and then at some point, we're going to cut over just to our members. Uh, the members won't have to do anything. They just stay where they are, but all the other streams will be cut off, except for the Law of Self-Defense members, uh, because we're going to show the video of this shooting. Uh, two videos, actually. One is uh, the body-worn camera video of the officer involved in the shooting, uh, which actually cuts off before the shooting because the camera becomes deactivated in the fight. Uh, but then we also have a uh, video taken by a, uh, a bystander's uh, phone uh, that shows the actual shooting. And for sure, if uh, well, you know what will happen if I show that on a, a normal public stream. So uh, we won't do that. Uh, we're going to keep those videos as usual for law self-defense members content. What we'll talk about first are kind of the uh, the legal principles. What's happened in the case? We just had a very important court ruling in this case. Um, and of course, this is the Patrick Leola, Lee Yoya shooting out in Michigan where a white police officer shot a violently non-compliant black suspect. Uh, the usual crew is involved now. Benjamin Crump, of course, has uh, become part of this case. And uh, and we have some breaking news just from, uh, I believe, just from yesterday. And that is that they had the probable cause hearing uh, for this officer. The officer had been charged with murder by the state of Michigan uh, for this killing. And uh, they had what's called the, a preliminary hearing, a probable cause hearing, uh, where the defense is demanding the state show probable cause. Um, that this was in fact a crime and uh, the judge presiding over the hearing makes that determination and he decided in a lengthy written ruling uh, several pages and we're going to go through all of it uh, that there existed probable cause in this case for this officer to go to trial on a charge of murder. Um, I frankly disagree uh, with that opinion but I think in part uh, what we're dealing with here is a function of the broken nature of the legal concept of probable cause as a barrier to prosecution, a defensive barrier for people who ought not be brought to trial. Uh, and it's important to have those barriers because otherwise we live in a, in a gulag nation. The state is supposed to achieve, overcome uh, certain barriers at certain part of the criminal process. Uh, the most important to us being other than, of course, being found guilty by a jury, but the most important barrier prior to that point uh, is really this probable cause hearing where it's determined whether or not uh, there's enough of a case to take you to trial in the first place. And the reason that's important uh, 
um, is because of the, the very destructive nature of the trial, the, the temptation uh, for the state to use the process itself as the punishment, the hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, the months or years out of your life. And that's all true even if you're acquitted at the end. Um, plus, you may not be acquitted. There's a certain amount of noise in the system. There's always a 10% chance of getting convicted, uh, no matter how innocent you are, uh, if you're put in front of a jury. So you don't want to be put in front of a jury and incur that risk unless there's good reason for it. And the reason is not supposed to be political. The reason is supposed to be legal and a function of the application of law to the available evidence, the available facts in the case. Um, and this kind of probable cause judgment is often difficult, uh, especially where facts can be ambiguous, where facts are being contested. Um, and often in those cases, you'll see uh, the inclination of the judge is to, well, if the facts are ambiguous or judgment calls need to be made about the facts, they feel more obliged to advance the case and put it in front of a jury because it's supposed to be the role of a jury, really, ultimately, to be the finder of fact in a criminal case. Um, one of the main reasons I object to this finding of probable cause here is, one, I, I don't think it's substantively found in the evidence. But second, there really are no disputed facts here. The entire event was captured on video. So there's no ambiguity. There's not like there's uh, witnesses who are telling different versions of what happened and you need a jury to decide credibility here. Everything's really on video that you would need to know. And obviously the judge has seen the video. So given the lack of ambiguity about the facts, in other words, the certainty uh, of the facts, I just don't see probable cause here for this prosecution. If we define probable causes, I believe it ought to be defined. So that'll part, be part of um, today's show and uh, discussion. Okay, so with that, a quick overview. Let me just pull up a, a news report here. It's only a couple of paragraphs, and then it dives into the court's actual ruling, uh, which is what we'll, which is what we'll cover. Uh, let's see. Share, share, share. Where is my Chrome tab? Sorry about the ads here, folks. I have to turn off uh, ad, um, ad block in order to uh, show this to all of you. And of course, as some of you may know, a fellow, fellow lawyer paid for my, my very nice watch uh, recently. So I'm getting lots, given the nature of the internet, I'm suddenly getting lots of watch ads. I didn't buy an Omega, by the way, I bought a Rolex. So headline, read judges full ruling in ex-Grand Rapids police officer's fatal shooting of Patrick Leoya. Um, I actually, I, I wasn't, I don't think, aware that the uh, that the officer had, in fact, been fired, but apparently that's what the headline suggests. Um, the rest of the article still calls him police officer. Oh, former police officer. Fair enough. Uh, but here's the article. After two days of testimony, Grand Rapids District Judge Nicholas Ayub, that would be the gentleman, I believe the gentleman in the, well, now I'm not sure, actually, which of those men it is. No, it must be the one in the lower right here with the big chair. That would be the judge's chair. Uh, not that it matters what he looks like, but Judge Nicholas Ayub on Monday, October 31st, yesterday, ordered former Grand Rapids police officer Christopher Schur to stand trial on second-degree murder charges in Patrick Leola's killing. Schur, the officer, 31, shot and killed Leola, 26, on April 4th after a traffic stop. Uh, the two fought for control of the officer's taser, which was discharged twice without hitting 
the suspect before the officer shot him in the back of the head. Uh, and in a courtroom packed with supporters of both uh, the uh, suspect and the officer, former officer, the judge read, read an 11 page opinion below. And we're going, we're going to step through all of that opinion. Uh, I may skip paragraphs here and there if they get um, unnecessarily technical, but I don't, I don't recall any of those. So we'll probably go right through, right through the case. Now, before we do that, I just want to refresh everyone's recollection on what's happening here. So this is not a hearing where guilt is determined. This is a hearing to determine whether or not this officer, this defendant, this accused, uh, should be advanced to the next step of the criminal justice pipeline from having been arrested, charged by a prosecutor, um, now going to trial. So a, a jury will be selected um, and the case will proceed to trial and some verdict presumably will be arrived at at the end of the day. Um, and there's various thresholds of evidence that are required by the law to advance further up the pipeline all the way through conviction, right? For conviction, obviously, we need proof beyond a reasonable doubt to the satisfaction of the jury of each and every element of the criminal charge. And in a case like this, that's going to involve a claim of self-defense. We also need proof beyond a reasonable doubt to the satisfaction of the jury that, um, that, that the state has disproven self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. So, um, but that's, that's the highest threshold we have in the law is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There's lots of lower thresholds of evidence. And in part, um, the, the height of the threshold of evidence required in any particular step in the process is, is partly a function of the threat to the defendant. All these thresholds are intended to protect the defendant, the accused from the power of the state, right? That should go without saying, but who knows, it's 2022. I don't know if they teach this kind of stuff in school anymore. So uh, when, when uh, a prospective state action in this criminal prosecution process is a relatively modest interference with a suspect or an accused or a defendant, the, the threshold of evidence typically required uh, for the state to engage in that infringement is similarly modest. It's proportional to the level of inconvenience to the client. Uh, when we get to the other end of the spectrum, so when it's a small inconvenience, relatively low threshold of evidence required for the state. When we get to the ultimate level of convenience, which of course is uh, stripping an accused of their liberty, uh, convicting them, finding them guilty of a crime and sentencing to some term of years in a prison, uh, it's a very high threshold of evidence required for that. The highest that we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But in between, there's a lot of intermediate levels of evidence, um, one of which is probable cause. And where I think probable cause should appropriately be placed is not, in fact, where it is placed in our current legal system. And that's why I think probable cause in America is a broken legal concept that's not adequately serving its intended purpose. So, of course, we do uh, legal analysis and education here at Law Self-Defense. So I actually have a little PowerPoint slide. I think I have a little PowerPoint slide. I do. Now, for those of you who are listening to this in, uh, let's see if I can change this up a little bit. Yeah, that should, I think that'll work okay. I'm uh, listening to this in audio form, podcast form. Uh, I've got a little visual set of slides here. They're not complicated. I'll just also describe them verbally so you can have a sense of what's going on. Um, imagine a continuum of thresholds of evidence from left to right. It's a horizontal bar. Um, 
And at the far left end, it's 0% evidence. So there's zero evidence of anything having to do with criminal misconduct, criminal behavior. Um, zero evidence. At the other end of the spectrum is 100% evidence. Absolute certainty that this defendant committed the crime as charged, right? That's the continuum. A minimum of 0% of evidence and a maximum of 100% of evidence. And along this continuum, our criminal justice system in America um, establishes certain defined, sometimes well-defined, sometimes poorly defined thresholds of evidence. Let me see if I can. Um, one of the most common thresholds of evidence is preponderance of the evidence. And that's simply a more likely than not standard. Uh, is it a by the majority of evidence is something proven or not proven. And this is the normal standard in a civil trial, for example. Um, that's all that's required. Somebody alleges some kind of tort, some kind of um, unjust conduct that resulted in damages. Uh, they don't have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, like the state has to prove a crime in a criminal prosecution. A plaintiff in a civil case uh, generally uh, has to prove uh, the, the claimed misconduct and harm by a preponderance of the evidence, meaning 50% plus a hair, and it's decided that's what happened. And if it's 49.9%, it's decided that's not what happened. Now, when a jury typically is making that assessment, are they saying with absolute certainty, 0% chance it happened or 100% chance it happened? No. No, we just had the trial with Kevin Spacey, right? Some kind of sexual assault trial he was in and the jury found against the plaintiff. Somebody was su suing Spacey for sexual misconduct. The jury found against the plaintiff. Uh, that was a civil trial. The legal standard is preponderance of the evidence. The jury found against the plaintiff and for Kevin Spacey. Does that mean that the jury believes there's zero chance that Kevin Spacey sexually assaulted the plaintiff? No. They might think there's a 49% chance that Spacey did that, but that would not be sufficient to achieve the required threshold of evidence in a civil suit in order to find um, that the plaintiff had won, that the plaintiff had proven their case in a civil court to the necessary threshold of evidence, which is a preponderance of the evidence. All it means is that the jury was given this threshold and said, you have to decide if it's 50% over and a hair, then you find for the plaintiff. And if it's a hair below 50%, you find for the defendant. And that's what they did in that particular case. But there's no certainty, right? There's no 0%, 100%. It's floating somewhere around there in the middle. Now, I guess you could interview the jurors and ask them, maybe they did think it was 0% or 100%, but you'd have to ask them. Their verdict alone would not tell you that. So that's preponderance of the evidence. Uh, on a very, very low end of the spectrum, we have a threshold called reasonable suspicion. And it means pretty much exactly what it says, that somebody has a suspicion, not a, a high degree of certainty at all, a very low degree of certainty, so low a degree of certainty that it's a suspicion. But the suspicion has to be reasonable, meaning it can't be uh, based on some speculation, uh, particularly in, in our uh, case law in the US on some kind of like racial speculation. You see someone with dark skin in a white skinned community, you can't just assume they're there to commit a crime, for example. Um, there has to be some articulable set of facts against which you applied your powers of reason to develop this suspicion. Uh, and this is what's required for an officer to stop you 
for example, and ask what the hell you're doing there. Um, and how might this arise? It might arise because uh, someone's been robbing cars in their neighborhood dressed in a particular way, and you your dress matches that description. Does the officer know that you did something wrong? Does he even have uh, even a 50% belief that you did something wrong? He, he, no, not yet. But he can have a reasonable suspicion, a suspicion based on the fact that your dress matches the dress of someone who has been robbing cars in the neighborhood. That's the reason, reasonable suspicion he can use to stop you and basically conduct an a ad hoc investigation right there. Who are you? Why are you here? What are you doing here? Things along those lines to try to um, flesh out that suspicion into something greater than merely a reasonable suspicion. Uh, and by the way, uh, one cliche in the law, especially the criminal law, is if you're in a car, there's almost always something. There's almost always reasonable suspicion. I would argue there's almost always probable cause, um, but it is kind of a cliche. On the other end of the spectrum, we have a concept we all know, of course, beyond a reasonable doubt. This does not mean 100% certainty. This is part of the reason why it's possible for the most innocent defendant to be convicted. 10% chance of conviction at least because the jury's not required to be absolutely certain that the defendant's guilty of a crime. They need to be certain beyond a reasonable doubt. They could have some slight doubt um, and still find you guilty. They don't have to have absolute certainty. So beyond a reasonable doubt, it's not 100%. In fact, it's not any specific percentage, any more than reasonable suspicion is some particular percentage on this continuum. Whenever a judge tries to help a jury and define for the jury, suggest a particular percentage for beyond a reasonable doubt, and they might say, well, it's 90% of the evidence or 95% of the evidence or 98% of the evidence, uh, they always get reversed because the appellate courts don't like this. They want the concept of reasonable doubt to be whatever that particular jury decides it means with no further guidance from the court, except to the extent that, again, just like reasonable suspicion has to be the, the suspicion has to be the product of reason, not speculation, uh, whether or not there is a remaining doubt also has to be reasonable. The application of powers of reason to evidence, not merely a, a speculative doubt about whether or not the defendant is guilty. You, you have to be making a reasonable decision here. That's what beyond a reasonable doubt means. Um, but other than that, the courts generally simply define reason beyond a reasonable doubt by using the words beyond a reasonable doubt, which perhaps not super helpful, but that's the way we do it. Then we have another standard. Uh, it doesn't come up too often in criminal law, but there, there is a particular circumstance, um, which I may talk about more tomorrow, in which it can come up. Um, and that is something called clear and convincing evidence. And the truth is, we don't really have a great definition for what clear and convincing evidence is, except that it's not as high a threshold as beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's a higher threshold than a mere preponderance of the evidence. So it's somewhere ranging between that 50% and whatever you think beyond a reasonable doubt is, 90, 90%, 95%. But it's a very vague, ambiguous legal standard. And the most common place we see it applied today in criminal law is in the state of Florida. Uh, Florida has uh, a legal doctrine called self-defense immunity. Self-defense immunity is best thought of as kind of a, uh, accelerated, time-efficient, cost-efficient, pre-trial way to arrive at a finding of self-defense justification. 
uh, without having to go to a full-blown trial. A defendant can demand a self-defense immunity hearing, what's often mistakenly called a stand-your-ground hearing in Florida. And if the uh, defendant does that, then the state in that hearing has to disprove the claim of self-defense by clear and convincing evidence. Now, once the case goes to trial, if it goes to trial, then the state would have to disprove a claim of self-defense by beyond a reasonable doubt, a higher threshold. But at the pretrial self-defense immunity hearing, the state's threshold is lower than that. It's clear and convincing evidence. So they might be able to disprove self-defense immunity, disprove self-defense at the pretrial hearing by clear and convincing evidence, which would deny the defendant immunity and he off the trial he would go. And the state could, even though they've met the threshold of clear and convincing evidence, they could still fail to meet the threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt, and that defendant would be acquitted. But at least with the self-defense immunity doctrine, um, where the defendant has a strong case of self-defense, they have a prospect for having self-defense adjudicated, a court finding of self-defense and a dismissal of the charges in immunity, immunity from uh, prosecution and civil suit. Um, in that, in that much less costly, much less risky pretrial setting than in the full-blown trial. But again, clear and convincing evidence, kind of a vague, unclear standard, not well defined. Now, what about probable cause? Where on this scale should we, should we put probable cause? In other words, how much evidence on this continuum from 0% to 100% how much evidence should the state be obliged to present at a pretrial hearing in order for a judge to agree that you should be subject to criminal prosecution on that charge? And I've always believed that the appropriate standard here, when we're making this probable cause assessment for the purposes of going to trial, is that the threshold for probable cause should be identical to that of preponderance of the evidence. It should be right at 50%. And I think the support for that is not only sound on public policy reasons and on reasons of law, but it's in the phrase itself. Probable. Probable cause. Probable means more likely than not. I would argue. Um, but is that where our legal system, our modern American legal system today, places the threshold for probable cause? Is the state actually required to present to the court or to a grand jury, um, a majority of evidence, a preponderance of evidence that you're guilty of the crime before you can be dragged into a criminal prosecution? The answer is no. Uh, the state's not required to meet anything like that threshold of evidence. In fact, the threshold they're required to meet is some undefined level of evidence that's substantially less than preponderance of the evidence. It's more than reasonable suspicion, but it's less than preponderance of the evidence. And I think that's wrong. And, and this plays out in a few different ways. If we're talking about this kind of probable cause hearing, um, as we'll see, the judge wrote in his, uh, in his decision here, his 11-page decision that we'll step through in a moment, uh, the judge is basically saying, um, if there's any view of the evidence that's consistent with guilt, any narrative of guilt that the prosecution can present that has any support in evidence, that's sufficient for probable cause. So you could imagine that might be 25% of the evidence supports the claims of the prosecution. And that would be sufficient for this judge to proceed this defendant to criminal prosecution. I think that's wrong. I think it's especially wrong when everyone knows that at the trial itself, 
the standard's going to be that the prosecution has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is an enormously higher threshold than preponderance of the evidence and much greater than the current standard for probable cause. My feeling is that if a prosecution cannot show 51% evidence at a probable cause hearing, they ought not be given the opportunity to try to gin up the 95% of evidence that's required for a guilty verdict. The defendant ought not be subject to that risk. And in the context of where we're not talking about a probable cause hearing, but we're talking about a grand jury indictment, I mean, it's even worse because for grand juries, they're, they're really only told one side of the story. They really only hear the prosecution's side of the narratives. Remember, there's always competing narratives, right? There's a narrative of guilt that's crafted by the prosecution, and there's a narrative of innocence that's crafted by the defense. So there's these competing narratives. And in the trial itself, those can be completely argued on both sides in theory. But for the grand jury purpose, to determine whether or not there'll be an indictment and a defendant gets an accused gets dragged off the trial in the first place, the grand jury only hears one side of the argument. They only hear the prosecution's narrative. And we all know if you only hear one side of an argument, it sounds pretty compelling. That's why trials themselves are an adversarial process. And frankly, grand juries should be more of an adversarial process. Now, in this pretrial hearing we have in this case, this probable cause hearing, it was more adversarial. Um, both sides were allowed to argue to the judge. The judge acted as a finder of fact in the sense of he had to determine whether or not there was probable cause um, behind the state's narrative of guilt, this second-degree murder charge against this officer, before he would allow the matter to proceed to trial. But the threshold, the judge said, for probable cause is so low that I think we have an unjust result here. Um, now, it is possible, so we do have to be careful. It is possible for there to be cases where there's um, contested evidence, contradictory evidence, ambiguous evidence. Um, and so it, it's, we, it's hard to know what the true story is. And when you have that kind of conflicting evidence, different witnesses saying different things, a forensics evidence that's inconsistent, um, you, you may want to go to a jury with that because the jury is the ultimate finder of fact. They have to determine which of the witnesses comes across as more credible and all those finder of fact functions that are the role of the jury. So I get it where the evidence is more ambiguous. A judge may be more inclined to proceed the matter to a jury, even where probable cause may not be 51%. Uh, but I find it particularly offensive to, to use such a, a low threshold of probable causes they're doing here when there is no ambiguity in the evidence. And here there's really no ambiguity of the evidence. We'll see it when we step through the video uh, in the members only portion of today's show. And by the way, folks, if, if you'd like to step through the video with us, um, it's easy to become a law of self-defense member. Just the URL is right there in my name. Um, let's see. How do I stop this stupid? Here we go. Uh, lawofselfdefense.com slash join. You can join right now. Open up another tab in your browser. It's less than $10 a month, folks. It's about 30 cents a day uh, to be a member. That covers you for an entire month. So no $5, $10 super chats each show, $9.95 a month, and you're in. Uh, and uh, you'll be able to access the members-only part of the show by going to your... You'll immediately get instructions to get to your Law Self-Defense dashboard uh, to continue to be able to watch the show from there. So the probable cause threshold. It, it also should be noted that 
there may be shades of probable cause in different legal contexts. Uh, it's, you know, these terms of art can mean different things in different legal contexts because there could be different public policy questions at play. Uh, I would argue that the probable cause that ought to be required for advancing someone to a full-blown criminal trial uh, probably ought to be higher than the probable cause that's required for a search warrant, for example, or to make an arrest in the first place, for example. Um, a, uh, there may be a, a, a report of a just committed armed robbery with a detailed description and the cops arrive on the scene and there's a guy who matches the description, so they want to arrest that guy. Um, normally for arrest, you need probable cause to believe the person committed a crime. Do we really want that to be 51%? before the cops can make a lawful arrest of that suspect who matches the description of an apparently identical person who just committed an armed robbery. I'd say, I'd say probably not, but keep in mind the, the inconvenience to the person arrested is also much less than if they're subject to a criminal trial where there's a 10% chance that even the most innocent defendant gets convicted and sent to prison for the rest of their life, which is what would happen here if this officer is convicted of this second-degree murder charge. So, all of that is kind of a disclaimer. So, hopefully, we all have those thresholds and evidence in mind now. Um, I'm going to make a, a quick note. Something else I should mention, folks, is we started, Law Self-Defense has started a new YouTube channel. And that YouTube channel is uh, Law of Self-Defense Briefs. So most of our content is like this. It's an hour long or two hour long live stream videos. Um, and I know when I go to YouTube to watch videos, sometimes I don't have an hour or two to watch something. Uh, sometimes I'm waiting for a dentist appointment or something and I might have 10 minutes to watch something. Um, so what we're doing is we're, we're going to start taking these longer videos that we do live. Uh, and after we're done with the live show, we'll chop them up into eight or 15 or 20 minute segments, smaller segments. Um, that we'll put on this new YouTube channel. Uh, so that's why we're calling it Law of Self-Defense Briefs. It's easy to find, by the way. It's at lawofselfdefense.com slash briefs, and you'll be redirected to the new YouTube channel. Uh, if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to go there and subscribe so we can start building up our, our subscriber count and uh, you getting notifications of when our short content is up there. Now, obviously, if you watched the entire live show, you'll you'll have seen the short content. Um it's just another way we're trying to provide value to the law of self-defense community. No, not, not boxers, briefs, legal term briefs, obviously. All right. So let's turn now to this, this decision. And uh, I stripped it out and put it into uh, word formats. And this is it. Okay, so the people of the state of Michigan versus Christopher Shore. Shore is, of course, the uh, the former officer involved here. And I'll more or less just step through uh, the decision and then comment as we go, as seems appropriate. So defendant is charged with second-degree murder. 
The statute is 750.317. A preliminary examination was conducted on October 27th and 28th. That would be this um, probable cause hearing as I'm describing it. Following the presentation of proofs of evidence by both parties, meaning the state and the defense, the state moved the court to bind the defendant over on the single charge of second-degree murder. For the reasons discussed herein, the court finds, spoiler, that there is probable cause to bind the defendant over to the court to stand trial on the charge contained in the felony complaint, which is that second-degree murder charge. So, background. The relevant underlying factual background is not disputed, and that's a real issue I have here, folks. Uh, I'd be more amenable to a loosier, goosier probable cause standard in this case, except the, the facts are not ambiguous. The facts are not really in dispute, and they're all captured um, by camera. So there's there's not really an assessment of facts that needs to happen here. It's obvious to everybody's eye, any reasonable, impartial person's eye, which this judge is supposed to be, that's his job, to be reasonable and impartial, uh, what happened here? There's no contested evidence, as the judge himself notes. And if there's no contested evidence, I think the threshold for probable cause ought to be 51% before you can drag someone into the cost and risk of a criminal trial. In any case, the relevant underlying factual background is not disputed. On April 4th of this year, defendant Christopher Schur was a police officer, Grand Rapids PD, on duty. Um, and after just after 8 a.m., he initiated the traffic stop of a Nissan Altima after observing that the license plate on the vehicle was issued to another car. Uh, this number one here is a footnote. There's no dispute about the valid validity of the traffic stop. So the state's not contesting that. Uh, by Michigan statutes, it's a crime to have the wrong plate on the car. Uh, clearly a lawful stop. Um, so no question about that. The decision continues. Before defendant, this would be Lee Yoya. Uh, fully, uh, sorry, defendant is sure, the officer. Before sure, the officer fully exited the police cruiser. The driver of the Nissan, later identified as Patrick Leoya, stepped out of the vehicle. Uh, officer shouted at him several times to get back in the vehicle, and he did not comply. Officer asked him if he spoke English. He said yes. We'll see all this, by the way, in the video, in the, the members-only part of today's show. Uh, defendant asked him if he had a driver's license. He indicated he did and told the passenger in the Nissan to hand him the license. Uh, and the court now mentions in another footnote, the traffic stop and aftermath were captured on video recording from three separate um, sources, the police car's dash camera, the officer body-worn camera, which is what I'll share with you, and cell phone video taken um, by the passenger in Leola's vehicle. I'll share that with you as well. Uh, Leoya did not wait for the passenger to hand him the license. Instead, he abruptly closed the door of the vehicle, walked towards the front of the car in what appeared to be an attempt to get away from the officer. Uh, the officer responded by telling him to stop, reached out to restrain and handcuff him. Uh, officer was unable to immediately restrain Leoya, and after a struggle, Leoya was able to break free from the defendant, ran around the back of the Nissan into the adjacent residential front yard. Are you just allowed to run away from a traffic stop, folks? Nope, you're not allowed to do that. Is the officer acting lawfully here? Yes, certainly. Um, oops, sorry, this last line is from uh, the news article, not from the court's decision. I forgot to edit that out. Uh, the officer pursued Lee Yoya, telling him to stop. He's heard radioing out, we've got one running. Officer reached Lee Yoya on the side yard of a neighboring house. 
Uh, officer was able to grab Leoya from behind. While this prevented Leoya from running, defendant struggled to fully restrain and take control of the suspect. Officer continued to yell commands at the suspect to stop, put his hands behind his back. And while the suspect said, okay, he continued to struggle and was not complying with the officer's commands. The officer is seen striking the suspect in the abdomen with a knee multiple times with no apparent effect. Uh, Leoya was a pretty big guy. I don't know how big the officer is because we, um, I, not a small guy either, but it's, uh, it's not like uh, Leoya was a small dude. Uh, Leoya appears completely impervious to the officer's attempts to subdue and restrain him, which, I mean, this is speculation, of course, that would be, and I haven't seen toxicology results here, uh, but it would be consistent with someone who's drugged or intoxicated. And to my eye, uh, Leoya looked drugged or intoxicated when he's first verbally interacting with this officer saying he's got his license. It's very argumentative from the beginning, by the way. Why are you stopping me? Why are you stopping me? The officer tells him, you got the wrong plate on the car. Do you have a license? Do you speak English? And uh, his eyes look glazed to me, the suspect's eyes. The decision continues. By this time, the homeowner in the adjacent house came outside to observe. Uh, he urged the suspect to follow the officer's orders. Um, he testified he was also encouraging the passenger in the car to tell the suspect to comply and get on the ground. The officer then pulled his taser, 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 taser from his utility belt and the suspect grabbed the front of the taser with his left hand. I think I have a photo of that. Let me see if I uploaded that. Oh, that's the featured image, actually. That's not what I wanted. You can see that here, the featured image for today's show. That's the suspect, obviously, grabbing the taser in the officer's hand. The suspect, of course, being dark-skinned. The officer being light-skinned. So, continues. Um uh, the, the officer commanded the suspect to let go of the taser. The suspect did not comply. The taser discharged one of its two cartridges, which lodged in the ground without striking anyone. The two continued to struggle over the taser. The officer and suspect struggled to the ground with the suspect underneath the officer, attempting to take exclusive control of the taser. We'll see this in the video, too. During the struggle, the taser's second cartridge was discharged. That's the second of two in this particular mode of taser. Uh, of course, it's an open question whether or not the officer realized both had been discharged or even would have thought of it in the heat of the violent physical confrontation with the suspect. Um, remember, we're supposed to consider all this in the totality of the circumstances, including the stress of being in physical combat. Uh, the suspect attempted to get back up, raised his legs and arms in an apparent attempt to throw defendant off his back. At one point, the officer's arms and legs are seen fully suspended in the air as the suspect pushed up from underneath him. So this was a strong dude, a really strong dude, this suspect. Ultimately, the suspect gained exclusive control of the taser and was able to transfer it to his other hand. Uh, all the while this went on, the officer continued to shout the commands, drop the taser, let go of the taser. You'll see headlines about this case, folks, um, in publications like the New York Times, those kinds of things, Washington Post, reporting that this officer shot an unarmed black man. This white officer shot an unarmed black man. It's total bullshit. Uh, I have a still photo. I'm not going to show it here. I'll show it in the members-only portion of today's show 
moment, the moment before the fatal shot is fired, the taser is clearly in the sus suspect's hand. He wasn't unarmed. He was armed with the officer's taser. And even though both, uh, both of the two cartridges had been discharged, the taser is still fully capable of operating in stun mode or drive mode, uh, pressed against somebody. In this case, presumably, it would be pressed against the officer uh, to um, compel compliance with whatever the holder of the taser wants. That's the person for that's the purpose for drive mode and stun mode. It's not as physically disabling as a good hit with the darts, uh, but it's no fun. Uh, and it's obviously intended, designed and intended to induce compliance. So the suspect would then be compelling compliance of the officer, which doesn't strike me as a good day. Uh, let's see. Um, being unable to retain any control of the taser and with the suspect continuing to attempt to force himself up, the officer used his right hand to draw a service firearm and aimed it at the suspect's head. Officer then straightened his left arm while keeping the gun in his right hand, pointed at the suspect's head. Officer yelled one final time, dropped the taser. Seconds later, the officer fired his weapon, shooting the suspect in the head. None, none of these facts are in dispute. The court told us from the very beginning. None of these facts are in dispute, and I think they accurately described what we'll see in the video in the members-only portion of today's show. Uh, the medical examiner testified, in his opinion, that the suspect's death was homicide caused by gunshot wound to the back of the head. Well, obviously, again, that's, that's super not in dispute. Uh, and of course, homicide is not a crime. Homicide just means that one human killed another human. Uh, it could be a crime. It could be a murder or a manslaughter, or it could be legally justified self-defense or some other justification and not a crime at all. So homicide is really a more of a scientific finding. It's not a legal finding. Let's see. The court also heard the testimony of Brian Childs, a representative from Taser. Uh, so he talks more about the Taser darts. I'm not going to read this entire paragraph because I've already stated it more succinctly. Uh, both uh, sets of darts had been discharged. The Taser could still be used in drive mode. That's not as disabling as a good dart hit, uh, but Obviously, it's designed and intended to induce compliance in the victim of the stun. Uh, the court also heard from Captain Chad McCursky of the Grand Rapids Police Department. He trains police officers as a certified master taser instructor. He opined the defendant followed policy and procedure in this case, and that use of deadly force was justified under the totality of the circumstances. He explained the criteria that's considered when evaluating questions concerning the use of force. He also cautioned about the importance of evaluating questions from the circumstances as they appear to the officer, not with the benefit of hindsight. He also testified, presumably on cross-examination, um, that a number of alternative techniques and responses were available to the defendant, but that the policy recognizes, use of force policy, recognizes the discretion the police officer has to make those decisions in the heat of the moment. Uh, the captain offered an example of other tools and techniques that were available to the defendant at the time of the incident, including pepper spray or the use of the flashlight, baton, or radio to strike the suspect. Um, all of those, uh, well, the baton, depending on manner of use, I guess, uh, all of those, presumably the way the captain's describing them, would be non-deadly uses of force, which is what the taser is as well in this application. And there's no legal requirement that the officer choose any particular uh, non-deadly degree of force. Um, 
Uh, the captain also indicated it's impossible to know whether the suspect simply intended to break the grasp of the officer or to actually affirmatively attack him. Well, of course, how would we know? You never know, right? We don't have machines that can read minds, especially not the minds of dead people, people who are dead when we're asking the question. So we can't know for certainty what anybody was thinking. All we can do is make reasonable inferences from the evidence. And a reasonable inference from a violently powerful resisting suspect who's seizing weapons off an, off an officer, a reasonable inference, it doesn't have to be 100% certainty, has to be a reasonable inference, is that the suspect intends to use that weapon taken from the officer as part of their violent resistance to the lawful arrest. So the officer would have every reason to infer that he was about to become the victim of the weapons being taken off his belt, in this particular case of the taser um, that the suspect had seized control over. Uh, after hearing counsel's arguments, that would be the two narratives, right? The narratives of guilt from the state and the narrative of innocence from the defense. The court took the matter under advisement, uh, having had the opportunity to review the record. And after an extensive review of the applicable legal authority for the reasons discussed below, the court now concludes the record supports finding probable cause that a crime has been committed and the defendant was the one committing it. Therefore, defendant will be bound over. So this is the finding of probable cause. A funny thing about probable cause in this context is that the judge never really tells us what probable cause means. Um, basically, I mean, he does, but it's, it's such a loosey-goosey definition that really it seems like anything would apply or would meet that very low standard. It's certainly not a more likely than not standard. Absolutely not. He's, he's, the judge here is using a much lower threshold for probable cause than preponderance of the evidence, which is not uncommon. I just think it's wrong. It's wrong in this context, unambiguous evidence where the cost to the accused is a full-blown criminal trial. I think it's wrong to advance a, an accused to a full-blown criminal trial if a state cannot show 51% of evidence in an unambiguous fact situation like this one here. So, a little background now on criminal procedure. In Michigan, the preliminary examination, what I call a probable cause hearing, serves the public policy of ceasing judicial proceedings where there's a lack of evidence that a crime was committed or that the defendant committed it. This is the threshold I was talking about earlier. Before, the state should be allowed to advance someone into the cost and risk of a criminal trial. There's some threshold of evidence ought to be met. The judge here doesn't define what it is. He just says, well, there has to be some threshold. We call that the probable cause threshold without defining it. Um, recognizing the risk associated with standing trial for a felony. That's the risk I'm talking about, folks, for even the most innocent defendant. 10% chance risk of getting convicted, even if you're the most innocent defendant ever. Uh, the preliminary examination, like the grand jury, serves as a check on the power of the executive branch of government to proceed with criminal prosecution. Uh, however, the scope of judicial review of a criminal prosecution at the preliminary examination is very limited. Um, what the judge is suggesting here, and I think he's right about this, is where there is considerable ambiguity in the evidence, conflicting evidence, contradictory evidence, that it feels more right that a impaneled jury, an impartial, unbiased jury, uh, should make the calls on which version of the evidence they believe. I think for the judge to apply that loosey-goosey standard on the facts of this case, which are unambiguous, it's just a cop-out. I, I, 
I don't know if it's because he feels political pressure or he's afraid there'll be riots because this is a white officer shot dead, a black suspect situation because Benjamin Crump is in the room in the house, uh, ginning up all the racial uh, divisiveness that he needs to get his sweet, sweet, sweet civil uh, settlement uh, from the city of Grand Rapids uh, and to accumulate yet more political capital within the racial grievance industrial complex. I don't know. But it really, really feels like a cop-out on the unambiguous facts of this case. The judicial officer at the preliminary examination is tasked, the judge is talking about himself here, the presiding judge in this probable cause hearing. Uh, the judicial officer at the preliminary examination is tasked with making the legal determination of whether there exists the minimal amount of evidence that law requires to justify continuing the criminal prosecution. That minimal amount of evidence is what I've been calling a threshold. I think the threshold to go to trial on unambiguous facts should be preponderance of the evidence, a minimum of 51% of the evidence. This judge obviously disagrees, as we'll see. While the court makes that legal determination independent of the prosecutor's decision to bring criminal charges, the court's prohibited from second-guessing the prosecutor's charging decision. But that, that's not right. That's precisely the court's job here. That's explicitly the court's job in a probable cause hearing to second guess the prosecution. If we weren't going to second guess the prosecution's decision to charge, we wouldn't have a probable cause hearing. We wouldn't need it. If the prosecution's decision to charge was deemed alone sufficient to bring someone to trial, there'd be no point to having a grand jury or a probable cause hearing. So this is just stupid. And it's weird to me how the judge refers to himself in so many different ways. Rather, if the magistrate, again, the judge is talking about himself here, just using yet another legal term of art. If the magistrate determines the probable cause exists to support the charge under the law, he's obligated to bind the defendant over for trial. Again, we would all agree with that, but the devil's in the details. The devil is, well, where do you define the threshold of evidence for this thing we call probable cause? A failure by the court to bind the defendant over in that instance, meaning when there is probable cause, would amount to nothing less than the court's unconstitutional usurpation of power otherwise belonging to the executive. This is just a complicated way of saying if there's probable cause, then the prosecution's decision to charge should be translated into a criminal trial. And if there's not probable cause, then the prosecution's decision to charge should not be translated into a criminal trial. Um, simple enough. But that call of whether probable cause has been met and where the threshold for probable cause should be is determined by the judge. Um, then there's a footnote stated more plainly, while the court operates as a check on the prosecutor's power to bring criminal charges. See, are we not second guessing the prosecutor's decision to bring criminal charges? While the court operates as a check on the prosecutor's power to bring criminal charges, it's a very limited check. A court does not have the authority to veto the prosecutor's charging decision uh, in the same way that a governor or president can veto a bill by the legislature uh, just because they don't think it will work or they think it's a bad idea. A court can only determine whether the charge is founded upon probable cause, right? Again, the devil is in the details. That's the whole question. If it's legally sound, the court cannot stand in the way of the criminal prosecution. So uh, the judge is saying, hey, if there is probable cause, then I'm helpless. My duty is to advance the case to trial. And that's true. But, but the call of whether or not there's probable cause is made by the judge. That's his role here. 
at this preliminary examination. At a preliminary examination, the probable cause hearing, a court is tasked with determining whether a felony was committed and whether there is probable cause to believe the defendant committed it. Now, look at this phrasing. He's quoting here from a Michigan. Uh, this looks like a Supreme Court decision, Michigan Supreme Court, People v. Yost. He's being tasked with determining whether a felony was committed. Does that sound like more probably than not to you? Does that sound like preponderance of the evidence to you? It does to me. And whether there is probable cause to believe the defendant committed it. Not just cause, but the word probable is in there. What does probable mean? It means more likely than not. And we're back to a preponderance, 51% standard. The decision continues. The evidentiary standard is far less rigorous than that required for a conviction. Following a trial, of course, to get a conviction, it has to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's as close to 100% as we get in the American legal system. Uh, for probable cause, it's something less than that. Guess what, folks? Everything, every threshold of evidence is less than beyond a reasonable doubt. So this is not a very useful sentence. At the probable cause hearing, evidence from which at least an inference may be drawn establishing the elements of the crime charge must be presented. I would suggest you need a lot more than an inference. I would suggest before you put an accused to the cost and risk of a trial, you need 51% of the evidence. When you know you're going to have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in the trial itself, much more than just an inference, which is something substantially less than a preponderance. The probable cause standard of proof is, of course, less rigorous than the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt standard of proof. We just talked about that, Your Honor. Probable cause requires a quantum of evidence sufficient to cause a person of ordinary prudence and caution to conscientiously entertain a reasonable belief of the accused's guilt. I, I think that's the wrong standard. Now, the judge may be making the right call here under Michigan law. I did not do an in-depth re review of Michigan law on probable cause how the state defines it, but if this is how they define it, that a, a quantum of evidence sufficient to cause a person of ordinary prudence and caution to entertain, merely entertain, not think it's more likely than not, but merely entertain a reasonable belief of the accused's guilt, I think that threshold is far, far too low. And by the way, I don't think it's met on this unambiguous evidence in this case. Even that low standard is not met. We'll see that more clearly when we go through the video in the uh, the later portion, the members-only portion of today's show. Uh, yet to find probable cause, a magistrate, again, this judge, uh, need not be without need not be without doubts regarding guilt. Well, you never have to be without doubt. Even proof beyond a reasonable doubt allows some doubt. The reason is that the gap between probable cause and guilt beyond a reasonable doubt is broad, and finding guilt beyond a reasonable doubt is the province of the jury. That's true, but meaningless. So, of course, finding proof beyond a reasonable doubt is what a jury does. But you don't subject an accused to that unless you first met some lower threshold of evidence. And here the judge keeps saying over and over again, well, it's a lower threshold of evidence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm saying, well, it's less hot than the center of the sun. Well, of course it is. But that doesn't answer the question. The question is, well, how hot is it? What is the threshold? Uh, let's see. Again, he just keeps repeating himself here. In order to establish a crime has been committed, the prosecution need not prove each element beyond a reasonable doubt, but must present some evidence of each element. This is for a probable cause. Um, 
although it doesn't say it explicitly here. This is what this is referring to. Some evidence ought not be enough, folks, to drag an accused into a criminal trial. Some evidence would be 1% evidence. Should that be enough? I don't think that should be enough to drag someone through the cost and risk of a full-blown criminal trial where they have a 10% chance of getting convicted no matter how innocent they are. 1%? Just some evidence? No, I think there ought to be a substantial amount of evidence, specifically a preponderance of the evidence. Uh, And probable cause may be established purely by circumstantial evidence and reasonable inferences arising from evidence. Again, this is a meaningless sentence in the context we're in. Uh, Proof beyond a reasonable doubt can also be established purely by circumstantial evidence and reasonable inferences arising from the evidence. That, That just means it's based on evidence. Circumstantial evidence is evidence. There's there's nothing wrong with circumstantial evidence. It's, it's often better than eyewitness evidence. And reasonable inferences arising from the evidence. Well, that's what juries always do. They're always making reasonable inferences from the evidence, even when they're tasked with arriving at a finding of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So this this is how evidence is supposed to be considered, regardless of the threshold of evidence we're talking about. So it's just a, a not, a, not a helpful sentence in this context. During the preliminary examination, the magistrate not only um, has not only the right, but also the duty to pass judgment, not only in the weight and competency of the evidence, but also on the credibility of the witnesses. Th- this is all true, but again, this doesn't actually have to be done. We're not weighing conflicting evidence here. We're not balancing credibility of disparate accounts of events here it's it's all captured on video we know what happened it's not in dispute as this judge said himself at the very start of this opinion what happened here on the facts is not in dispute let's see again at the at the preliminary hearing the court's not to apply the same measure as a jury because there's a different standard for binding over for trial and for an ultimate finding of guilt, as we've said over and over and over again already. Uh, Our Supreme Court explained the gap between probable cause and guilt beyond a reasonable doubt is broad. He already said this. This judge already said this. It's so repetitive. Um, Unlike a jury, a magistrate may legitimately find probable cause while personally entertaining some reservations regarding guilt. No, a jury can also have reservations. They're not required to find guilt, absolutely. They're they're required to find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but not to a certainty. They can still have some doubt. Accordingly, in considering the credibility of witnesses, we're not doing that here. We're We're not assessing the credibility of witnesses. A magistrate may only decline to bind over a defendant if a witness's lack of credibility when considered together with the other evidence presented during the examination would preclude a person of ordinary prudence and caution from conscientiously entering. But again, this is all on camera. It's all on video. I mean, is he saying that he's doubting the credibility of the video? He never says that. I mean, it would be kind of an insane thing to do. He believes the video was doctored? I don't think that's what he's saying. Indeed, the magistrate or judge may very well be left with reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the charge and at the same time find probable cause to bind over the defendant. Yes, it's, it's possible that the threshold of proof beyond a reasonable doubt has not been met here. That doesn't necessarily mean that all lesser thresholds satisfy, thresholds of evidence should satisfy probable cause. Just because it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's true, That's not the standard for a probable cause hearing. Doesn't mean that 1% evidence should be enough. 
beyond a reasonable doubt, it's at 95% evidence. There's a big range between one and 95. And I would suggest the appropriate threshold would be 51. Uh, so then the judge steps through the elements of the charge. He talks about self-defense here. Um, self-defense, of course, will be the primary legal defense. And uh, the judge here writes, uh, at trial, the prosecution has a burden of disproving justification beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard. Uh, no one's going to deny this officer shot the suspect in the head. The only question in dispute is going to be whether or not it meets the elements of self-defense, the elements under Michigan law, which really are the same, of course, everywhere. Again, folks, if you don't have my five elements of self-defense law, cheat, cheat. These are the five elements of self-defense. You need to know that would be applicable in all 50 states up to five, not all states and not all circumstances apply all five. So for example, one of the five elements is the element of avoidance, whether or not there's a legal duty to retreat before you can use force in self-defense. Um, Michigan is a stand your ground state, so it doesn't apply the element of avoidance anyway in an otherwise lawful act of self-defense. And in any case, officers are, are generally precluded from the element of avoidance because they're privileged as law enforcement officers in the course of their duties to be the uh, both the initial aggressors and not have a legal duty to retreat from doing their duty. I mean, that would be crazy. Obviously, that wouldn't work. You have the authority to make an arrest, but first you have to flee from the suspect under a duty to retreat would be nonsense. Um and the judge talks a little bit about that here, that although Michigan's a stand-your-ground state, it, it wouldn't matter anyway. Even if it was a duty-to-retreat state, this officer making a lawful arrest obviously has no duty to retreat. Uh, so there's three possible arguments here, legal defenses the judge entertains, that the officer used force reasonably necessary in defense of himself, that he used appropriate force uh, in response to um, necessary to compel the suspect from complying with arrest, and that he used reasonable force to prevent a felon from fleeing to avoid capture. To my mind, it's really only the self-defense argument um, that would do the heavy lifting here. Uh, there, there are theoretical legal arguments to be made that an officer can, under some circumstances, use deadly force to compel an arrest, but I wouldn't want to be the person making those arguments. Uh, and the same with a, a fleeing felon, almost invariably today, um, you know, 200 years ago was different. 100 years ago was different. But today, uh, that fleeing felon, before you can use deadly force against them, you better be able to argue that if they're not still an imminent threat to you, deadly force threat to you, they better be to someone else. Maybe other responding officers, maybe people in the community. Maybe they're an active shooter and they're shooting at other people. Um, but the mere fact that they're fleeing, especially if it's a nonviolent felony they're fleeing from, uh, that would be a difficult sell. So let's just focus here on self-defense. Um, and he goes a little bit through the history of uh, self-defense here. He makes some common law references. I will uh, do a shout out to Donnie O. Uh, Donnie is a law self-defense member who's uh, very active in our community. Uh, makes lots of references, Donnie does, to Blackstone. Uh, Blackstone is a uh, very famous historical jurist. Wrote much of the captured, encapsulated much of the common law um, that uh, was our American law too, came from old English common law, America, our original versions of common law before we codified things into statutes as is the modern norm. You almost never see Blackstone quoted outside of uh, academic environments, but uh, there is a reference to Blackstone in a footnote 
to this particular decision. So, Donnie, there you go. Blackstone finally popped up. It's been a long time since I've seen Blackstone in a court decision. Uh, let's see. And indeed, here the court writes, the court confirmed that generally questions concerning the existence or lack of reasonableness of necessity in resorting to deadly force and self-defense are for the jury to decide after considering all circumstances. So was it reasonable and necessary for this officer to shoot the suspect? Um, that that should be up to a reasonable jury to decide. And I would agree, I would be inclined to agree where there is ambiguity in the evidence. There's no ambiguity in the evidence here. And I don't believe on this evidence, and we'll see it when we watch the video, that any reasonable jury could find that this officer did not have a reasonable belief that it was reasonable and necessary to use deadly force to prevent himself from being subject to the taser that the suspect had seized from him. The still operational taser. Uh, some conclusions concerning the use of deadly force can be made as a matter of law. Uh, for example, the general rule under the common law is that a person first attempt to retreat and avoid the danger before being justified in using uh, deadly force in self-defense. However, by operation of law, both common law and more recently by statute, the dirty duty to retreat is completely excused under cer certain circumstances. That's the stand your ground uh, provision I was just talking about. Uh, for purposes of this case, there's no dispute the defendant was legally pursuing the suspect and was therefore legally on the front lawn of the private residence at the point of the shooting, so he did not have any obligation to retreat rather than use force. The footnote there is about the uh, stand your ground law. Nonetheless, factual questions remain as to whether defendant reasonably believed his life was in imminent danger or that he was in imminent danger of suffering great bodily harm and that deadly force was reasonably necessary. These are questions of fact the jury must decide based on the totality of the evidence. I would suggest no. I would suggest the judge can make these findings of fact as a matter of law because we're not supposed to allow for irrational juries. There would have to be a prospect of a reasonable jury deciding that this officer didn't fear imminent death or didn't reasonably fear imminent death or serious bodily injury. There's no view of this evidence that can support that position. The officer was fighting a powerful, violently resisting suspect who was seizing the officer's weapons from him and had the officer's weapon in hand. It would be impossible to come to a conclusion that a reasonable officer would not have feared death or serious bodily injury under those circumstances. So could an irrational jury come to that conclusion? I suppose so, but that's not what we're supposed to be subjecting criminal defendants to. Uh, let's see. Among the standard instructions that would likely be read at trial, here they're talking about the um, jury instructions, self-defense jury instructions. The defendant must have been afraid of death or serious physical injury. When you decided the defendant was afraid of one of those, you should consider all the circumstances. The condition of the people involved, including their relative strength, whether the other person was armed with a dangerous weapon or had some other means of injuring the defendant, the nature of the other person's attack or threat, whether the defendant knew about any previous violent acts or threats made by the other person, 
at the time the defender acted, the defendant must have honestly and reasonably believed that what he did was immediately necessary. Under the law, a person may only use as much force as he thinks is necessary at the time to protect himself. When you decide whether the amount of force used seemed to be necessary, you may consider whether the defendant knew about any other ways of protecting himself, but you may also consider how the excitement of the moment affected the choice to the defendant made. Under those jury instructions, <laughs> apply to this evidence. How would this not be an acquittal at trial? How is this not justified self-defense? Again, there's no ambiguity here. It's not like we're talking about eyewitnesses who are telling different stories, very different stories to investigators. And those eyewitnesses would, would then need to be presented to a jury so a jury could make assessments of credibility. All of the questions asked in these jury instructions, all of these considerations are answered in the video objectively without dispute or ambiguity. The court continues, while the defendant has made strong arguments that the circumstances establish a reasonableness and necessity, this court cannot make that determination here at the preliminary exam examination as a matter of law. Yeah, he could. He could. Judges make callings of fact all the time. The only time they have to pass on a finding of fact is if reasonable people could differ. And that's where the role of a reasonable, impartial, unbiased jury comes in. But if there's only one reasonable view of the facts, judges make those findings a fact all the time, and they could certainly do it here. Remember, folks, whenever there's a preliminary probable cause hearing, and there's lots of them, just about every felony case that goes to trial will have a hearing of this nature, there's always a narrative being presented by the state of guilt. Right? There has to be. That's the whole nature of the hearing, the probable calls hearing. If the state is not arguing a narrative of guilt, there's no reason the defendant, the accused, would be there. So there's always some, at least speculative, view of the evidence that's consistent with guilt. And the decision the judge has to make is not whether there's zero narrative of guilt, but whether the narrative of guilt is reasonable given the known facts and law. And I would suggest there's no reasonable interpretation of this evidence under the law of justification in Michigan that could arrive at any conclusion other than acquittal on the grounds of legal justification and self-defense. Uh, the evidentiary record from the preliminary, preliminary examination contains enough to allow a person of average intelligence to conclude that defendant's fear was not reasonable or that the defendant's shooting of Loyola in the back of the head was not reasonably necessary. Uh, no, no. I just don't see that in this evidence. And, and the judge gets weirdly speculative here. Uh, he talks, for example, later about uh, that the, the officer could have shot the suspect in some other part of the body. Maybe the judge is particularly offended that uh, the suspect got shot in the back of the head. But you know what, folks? Legally, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you shoot somebody. By law, it's all deadly force. Use of a gun to shoot somebody is deadly force. It doesn't matter where you shoot them because you're causing death or serious bodily injury. There's no non-serious bodily injury gunshot wound. So you're using deadly force. You have to meet the threshold for justification of deadly force. Um, and if you're using deadly force, it doesn't really matter what the nature of the deadly force is. Either you're privileged to use deadly force to defend yourself or you're not. And if you are, the precise nature and mechanism of the deadly force does not matter for legal purposes. Uh, Captain Mikursky testified, and this is uh, the officer who is the taser expert, testified it's not clear to him whether the suspect was merely trying to get away or was prepared to offensively attack defendant. Again, we, we can't read minds. 
So it, it's, it, I guess it's not clear to anybody, but the officer who's acting in self-defense, the defendant here doesn't need absolute certainty. He doesn't have to be absolutely certain he has to kill to defend himself. He has to have a reasonable belief that he needs to kill to defend himself, not certainty. So it's always not clear. We never have 100% certainty. The question is not, we're not required to make perfect decisions in self-defense. We're required to make reasonable decisions in self-defense. That's something short of certainty. Uh, the judge continues, these are all circumstances that might affect how a fact finder would assess the necessity question. While the captain is of the opinion that techniques and actions defendant applied were appropriate, a jury would be free to conclude that under the circumstances, the use of deadly force in the manner it was used by the defendant was not reasonably necessary. I don't see how a reasonable jury could look at this evidence and come to that conclusion. And again, it's the video. It's unambiguous. This is not conflicting testimony from eyewitnesses where credibility has to be assessed. Uh, accordingly, for purposes of the probable cause standard, there's sufficient evidence from which a jury could find the defendant did not reasonably believe his life is immediately at risk, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't believe that on this evidence. Uh, then they address a couple of other justification defenses. I, I'm not going to bother with them out of the interest of time here. Uh, conclusion, for the foregoing reasons, the court concludes that as a legal matter, the probable cause has been presented to support the charge in the criminal complaint. Accordingly, it's the court's obligation to bind defendant over to the circuit court to stand trial on that charge in order binding defendant. Well, this will save, I guess this will save the town a riot, maybe. Whatever other horror Benjamin Crump might be able to scare up. But it doesn't strike me as justice. It doesn't strike me as due process law. It strikes me as uh, this officer being thrown off the sled so the wolves eat him first. I mean, the good news is that if the officer has a competent defense, he ought to be acquitted at trial, um, but he not ought be subject to a trial in the first place, in my opinion. All right, so we do answer questions uh, from the uh, law self-defense membership in the membership chat. So I'll take a look at that now. I'll answer what questions there are now. Uh, so collectively, we can we can all benefit. Even those of you who are non-members can benefit from the answers. Uh, but the only questions we answer are from our members. Uh, Donnie O is in the comments. Hey, Donnie. I hope you saw the uh, Blackstone reference in there. Welcome, everybody. All the usual suspects from the law of self-defense members. Donnie says, I would immediately appeal the probable cause determination by writ of prohibition and ask for a TRO. You may be able to do an interlocutory appeal to a, a court of appeals and get this court's uh, judgment assessed. The trouble is that the appellate courts don't, they really don't like to second guess uh, findings of fact uh, by a hearing judge. The court of appeals don't want to be they don't want to duplicate the role of the hearing judge. They used to do those hearings and then they got promoted and they don't want to do that function anymore. If there's an error in law, they might take the interlocutory appeal, immediate appeal from a trial court decision. Um, but if, if they're able to characterize it as a disagreement on fact, probably not. I, I think this ought to be a legal error here, as I've already explained at length. Uh, but, you know, just like the, there was wiggle room for this hearing judge to decide, no, the facts have to go to the jury, there'd be the same wiggle room for the Court of Appeals. So unless the Court of Appeals had a very, I don't know, different political, political, legal view uh, of this area of the law, I would not expect uh, 
such an appeal to be successful. Uh, no probable cause to believe the officer did not have a reasonable belief that he was in imminent danger of great bodily harm, death, or forcible felony. I concur, Donnie. Uh, and Donnie also writes, does it really matter why the suspect was using unlawful force? No. Nope. It doesn't. It doesn't even matter if, uh, if the suspect um, himself had a reasonable belief. Maybe the suspect had been told that an officer of this description was killing people that looked like him in the neighborhood. So he could argue, I had a reasonable belief I was being subject to an unlawful murder by this officer. Let's pretend that such an understanding would be reasonable. You could arrive at a conclusion that this suspect was legally justified in using deadly force in self-defense, not because he was right about what he believed, but because his belief was reasonable. That in no way diminishes the officer's right to protect himself from the suspect's threat of death or serious bodily injury. Both parties can be right and can be justified. It's not necessary that one of them be wrong. Both of them could be justified in the use of deadly defensive force. That's the way the law works because we don't require certainty because reasonableness is sufficient for the justification. Chris writes, this was my nightmare situation when I was a police. Yeah, folks, just imagine. You think the Grand Rapids Police Department might have trouble recruiting moving forward? You think they might start recruiting a bunch of guys like, like the, the cop who was still on probation who shot the, the kid in the car with the hamburger? Because all the senior officers, street officers, are either taking jobs off the street within the department, the academy, headquarters, public affairs, school resource officer, whatever, anything where they'd be unlikely to have to go hands-on with the suspect or retiring or just quitting or moving to another department, leaving enormous vacancies in the population of street cops within the department that now have to be filled with new recruits. Think we're going to get better decision-making out of new recruits? Recruits that the guys I know working in police academies tell me many of them have never been yelled at before? I don't think so. I think we're going to get worse results, worse decision-making from those young, sensitive officers. But, of course, that serves the purpose of people like Benjamin Crump, right? He lives off of poor decision-making or decision-making by officers he can characterize as poor. That's how he gets multi-million dollar settlements. So the more inexperienced officers making poor decisions, the more millions, tens of millions of dollars Benjamin Crump will collect. Chaos and mayhem are Benjamin Crump's lifeblood. That's how he makes his living. And he's certainly not opposed to more of it. All right, folks, that is, I think that is all I have to share with uh, everybody. Let's see what happened over on uh, Twitter. Hmm. Not a lot. Not a lot. Our first Twitter stream attempt. It looks like it was technically successful, but there's only four viewers. <laughs> Thank you guys very much for being there on Twitter. I don't know if Twitter just doesn't promote this stuff or what, but uh, it was certainly worth an experiment. We'll try it a few more times. Uh, lots of lots of people in the uh, in uh, Rumble. Oh my gosh! I even got a Rumble rant. I will read that. Uh, $5 from J. Cal. Uh, J. Cal, you're really better off instead of, you know, $5 for one rumble, whatever we call that. What do we call that? A rumble on rumble? Uh, for 10 bucks, you can be a member for the whole month. Ask as many questions as you want in the uh, in the member dashboard. But uh, 
Jcal asks, hey, Brank, I just bought your book the other day. I was hoping if at some point you could explain why USCCA isn't trustworthy. Uh, I could. I'm not going to take the time for that now, but I've written about it in detail. Uh, anyone interested, they can go to lawofselfdefense.com slash USCCA. And I explain there why I feel unable to recommend USCCA any longer as a provider for you know self-defense insurance coverage. Uh, my go-to for that kind of thing is uh, by far uh, CCW Safe, which uh, I think is really uh, an outstanding organization, uh, outstanding team of people. Uh, these things can always change, of course. Uh, it's uh, but the people that CCW Safe has in place are just world class. Between uh, their national trial counsel Don West, uh, the homicide investigators, they bring to be your investigators in the aftermath of a use of force event. So. It's not like the only investigators are the ones working for the prosecution, which is normally the case. It's just a tremendous team effort they bring to the table. Uh, you can learn more about that. We do have some special offers with them at lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. That's who I recommend. That's who I'm a member of. Uh, I'm an ultimate member of ccwsafe, so is my wife, Emily, as well. And they're currently the only organization I recommend for that purpose, not USCCA. Uh, let's see. And I, I also see someone in the comments mentioning uh, some of the, the Law Shield products. I also, I, I am not comfortable recommending the Law Shield products. I've, I've spoken to those guys. They seem like nice guys, uh, uh, genuinely intending to do good. I, I just don't like how their product is structured. Uh, okay. All right. Well, folks, I think I will wrap up with the uh, now we're going to go to the video. I'm going to show the video, the body worn camera video of the uh, confrontation between uh, the officer, then officer Shore and uh, suspect Leoya. Uh, and then we'll show the uh, what I believe is cell phone camera footage of the of the the final moments of the fight where the actual fatal shot is fired. Uh, but I'm not going to do that on uh I'm going to restrict that to our Law Self-Defense members only feed. And again, you can become a member right now on lawselfdefense.com slash join. It's only about 30 cents a day, less than 10 bucks a month. And you'll be able to uh, immediately join us on your brand new for you Law Self-Defense member dashboard. Uh, watch the uh, the live and chat video, um, which is where we're going to be. For those of you who are Law Self-Defense members, you don't need to go anywhere. Your feed will not be interrupted. Just stay right where you are. Uh, and when we come back, we'll roll through the video. And the whole point of rolling through the video now is that's the evidence. That's the facts here uh, on which the, this judge is saying a reasonable jury could conclude that this was not justified. Not any jury, not a speculative jury, but a reasonable, impartial, unbiased jury could look at this unambiguous evidence and find beyond a reasonable doubt that it was not a justified use of deadly force by this officer. And I simply don't believe that oh you can make your own decision when we come back with the video all right youtube it's been fun talk to you next time and twitter equally fun the four of you <laughs> i'll talk to you soon too and finally rumble rumble it's been great thank you and thank you j cal for the five bucks um oh j cal um says another $5. That would have been $10 right there, J. Cal. That would have been your monthly membership. Says uh, very kindly, he writes, I'll become a member, but I also want to promote your Rumble channel. Thank you for answering my question. Uh, well, you're very welcome. Uh, and thank you for your help. You know, we, we, this is how we really reach, uh, expand our community is through these videos on 
YouTube and Rumble and wherever we think it would be productive. Um, I'm kind of a, a, a non-technical boomer kind of guy, so it's a bit of a challenge for me to work with all these different platforms. And, of course, we never know when YouTube's just going to shut us down uh, like they can do in a whim. So we, we have Rumble as a backup. But really, folks, the best way to make sure you have access to our content is simply be a Law Self-Defense member. Um, and Rumble can't do anything about that. YouTube can't do anything about that. Twitter can't do anything about that. That's us. All right. Thanks again, J. Cal. Uh, and for anyone who'd like to become a Law Self-Defense member, we're going to, this is it, lawselfdefense.com slash join. All right, so everybody should now be gone except for our law self-defense members. And it looks like, in fact, that is still working just fine. So let's pull up this video now. Uh, okay. First, the body-worn camera video. Uh this is not too graphic. Uh, there is, of course, a physical confrontation here. There's a struggle uh, over the taser. We'll see. Uh, this next video I'm going to show, the video from a, a bystander is a witness's cell phone, is graphic. In that second video, you see a human being shot in the head fatally. Uh, there's not a lot of gore, but you see a person die in the second video. So if... if uh, I'll say this again before I show the second video, but if that's going to uh, keep you up at night, and I wouldn't blame you if it did, it's terrible to see a human being die, uh, that's the one you wouldn't want to watch. But let's move forward to the body camera here. As usual, it's, uh, it's muted for the first few seconds, and then things uh, get moving with both video and audio. It's less than three minutes long. I guess I would actually need to share the video, wouldn't I? Okay, let me try that again. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. Okay, here we go for real this time. Hey, stay in the car. Stay in the car. Stay in the car. Get in the car. Dude, I'm stopping you. You have a license? What? Do you have a license? What? I'm stopping you. Do you have a license? What do? Do you have a driver's license? Do you speak English? Yes. Can I see your license? The resolution is not very good here, but his the eyes look blazed. Plate doesn't belong in this car. Do you have a license or no? I mean, if I were a cop, I'd be doing a do full sobriety test. Yes. Where is it at? Is in the car. Get it for me. What happened? The plate does not belong on this car. By the way, I'll just mention as an aside, remember all the criticism, the uh, the young cop who shot the kid with the burger in the, the car he believed to have been stolen, the cop believed to have been stolen. Uh, everyone argued, well, he should have run the plate first. <laughs> this cop ran the plate first. And now the suspect's going to, he's going to shut the door try to take off and the, the struggle ensues and then the, the body camera falls off the cop during the struggle in this video I, I end this video at that point no 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 stop stop you're going to have to walk away stop 1915 got one running wow 
Breathing. All right, that's the end of that first video. That's when the uh, the body camera deactivates. Can you hear the breathing? The cops breathing. The stress. Who who's who's compelling the need to use force here? Who's compelling the need to use any certain degree of force? It's not the cop. The cop's just doing his job here. All of this is unequivocally lawful. No one's contesting otherwise. It's a suspect. As usual, it's the suspect who determines how much force has to be used lawfully by the officer, making a stop, making an arrest, whatever the case might be. By the way, when someone flees from a traffic stop like this, you think that might raise reasonable suspicion? Suspicion based on reason, the observed conduct of the flight from the traffic stop, that there's something else going on? With that suspect, that's why they're in flight. The, the suspect's got paper out. It's got a warrant out. It's in possession of drugs. The car's full of drugs. There's someone in that car that shouldn't be there. The cop doesn't have to have probable cause for that, but it certainly would by itself raise reasonable suspicion, not to mention that all the, the forcible resistance of arrest, the, the, the use of force upon the officer, uh, those are all crimes themselves. So... The next video, so we have a break here. They're still fighting. Just imagine the men are still fighting. Uh, we're going to come back with a second video. The second video is, I believe, taken with a cell phone camera. That's usually how these things work these days. <clears throat> so it's a, a, a distance from the, you'll see the officer basically on top of the suspect. The suspect is still resisting. They're struggling over the taser. In fact, I have, uh, at the critical moment, I wanted to screen capture it to make sure we all saw it. This is the moment before the shot is fired. This is the situation. Uh, the cop has an arm here, uh, but it's, it's not on the taser. Uh, his right arm has got the pistol up against the suspect's head. The suspect has the taser in his hand right there. That little yellow spot right there is the, the back end of the taser being gripped by the pistol grip of the suspect. Uh, who could easily now turn that taser on in stun mode, drive mode, and use it on the officer. Uh, so this suspect is not unarmed. He's armed with the officer's taser, still violently noncompliant. 
um, reasonable inference that he would use that taser upon the officer to further his non-compliant violent resistance against lawful arrest. This is what the situation looked like the moment before the cop fired the shot. Uh, it's kind of hard to see in full motion, which is why I did the screen capture here, just to make it explicit. But you'll recognize the scene as we go through the, the uh, this next video. Uh, again, I caution, folks, now is the time. If you don't want to see someone shot in the head, now is the time to not watch. Okay, there's not going to be a lot of further analysis. I'm just going to kind of recap legally what I talked about earlier um, in the context of these videos. But that's it. Last warning. Fair warning. I, I don't want to hear complaints later. Okay. All right. So let me now pull up the second horrible to watch, but I believe entirely legally justified video. It's only about 30 seconds long. Okay, here we go. Let go of the taser! No, he ain't got no taser. I see, I see that. Go He's got the taser! The Officer's completely off the ground. He's got his gun out. And that's really it. So obviously the officer is shouting, get back because he's actually probably has a reasonable concern that he could also be the victim of violence by other people there, including the passenger that this guy, this suspect had in the car with him. Uh, he's obviously the officer is uh, overwhelmed by the suspect he's already dealing with. Uh, it would take uh, if he were being attacked by the passenger as well, it would be he'd be completely uh, outmatched in this physical confrontation, which would also lead him to perhaps be quicker to go to the gun that might otherwise be the case. Does nothing to remove the reasonableness uh, of this officer's decision making. And so when we watch those videos, I fail to see where the ambiguity is in the evidence that a jury would need to decide. There's, there's no view of this event that I believe a rational, reasonable, impartial, unbiased jury could use as a basis to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that this use of deadly force was not justified. Because that's the standard. The state would have to disprove self-defense justification here beyond any reasonable doubt. And I don't think there's any evidence here inconsistent with lawful self-defense to my mind it's much like the rittenhouse case much like the zimmerman case there's literally zero evidence inconsistent with lawful self-defense in a legal framework where the state's burden is to disprove self-defense not just by a little bit not just by 51 percent, but beyond any reasonable doubt the highest legal threshold we have in criminal law so I think it's ridiculous that this officer is being brought to trial. I think it's ridiculous that the this judge in this hearing, which will, by the way, be the trial judge. So this judge who used this very loosey-goosey, very low probable cause standard is also going to be the judge presiding over the trial unless something very strange happens. But generally speaking, all the pretrial hearings are done by uh, the judge who will be the trial judge. I guess that could be different. It doesn't have to be that way, but that's the norm. Uh, I think the very loosey-goosey standard on unambiguous evidence, a 
applied by this judge uh, to arrive at a finding of probable cause to bring this officer to trial on murder charges is is ridiculous, not legally sound at all on the law and facts and evidence in this case. <clears throat> okay. Uh, if someone's asking, uh, what about a grand jury? The states differ on whether they require a grand jury or don't require a grand jury. Um, like George Zimmerman never had a grand jury. Uh, in Florida, they just do things with what they call an uh, affirmation, basically um, just an oath that's signed by the investigators for the prosecutor's office, and the judge just takes that at face value, and they treat it the same as an indictment. Um, you always need a jury if it's going to be a capital case, but this is second-degree murder. So, all right, let me take a look at the comments from uh, the members here. Um who are, you're the only ones left at the moment. Uh, anytime I hear Crump's name, I cringe. Well, yeah, the guy's good at what he does, though. I got to give him credit. And what he does is not law, of course. I mean, technically, he's a lawyer, uh, but he's, he doesn't make his arguments in court. He's never in court, uh, not, not as a lawyer of record. His, his, his actual profession is, uh, you know, being a general in the uh, racial grievance um, industrial army. And he makes a lot of money doing it. Uh, let's see. It's scary how many young men have not ever been yelled at. Yeah, it is. You know why? They're, they're raised by women. That's why. And women can't raise men. Uh, let's see. Northman, a uh, newer member. First time listening here. Thanks for all you do. Thank you very much. Uh, Adam, no problem. Makes you human, not a machine. I mean, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I get it. Oh, I guess that's directed to me. Um, the video is choppy on my end, but your face isn't. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. That's, I'm not sure. It, it might have been. I don't know why that would be. It, the resolution is lower than I've seen it before, too. That I may have done something wrong when I created uh, the image. Uh, you can't keep fighting while you say, okay. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying doesn't matter, right? It's what you're doing that matters. It's, uh, it's like talking to women, right? You Don't pay attention to what they say. Pay attention to what they do. Um, Joe writes, see this all the time on OP, OP live previously on live PD, the suspect keeps saying, okay, I'm not resisting while they continue to resist. Right. Or they say, I can't breathe when the cop is doing nothing that can interfere with breathing. Right. It's all, it's all part of the drama. And maybe they can actually get, uh, somebody in the crowd to come intervene on behalf of the suspect, right. Attack the officer. That's what happened with the, uh, the uh, convenience store shooting, right? With the guy, um, with the firefighter, the firefighter is shooting. Uh, arguably, that's what happened. I'm sure that's what the girlfriend is going to say. The girlfriend who fired the fatal shot into the firefighter. Uh, I expect that what she communicated to prosecutors was that she believed she was saving her boyfriend from a fatal attack by the firefighter. And that would be the defense of others justification. I, I don't find that credible at all, uh, but I'm sure that's what she's saying. Um, yeah, suspect is armed with the taser. Crump would not want me on a jury, but Crump doesn't argue to juries. He doesn't care if you're on a jury or not because he never gets to a jury. Crump's practice is very rich settlements from politicians, and politicians are always happy to spend other people's money to make their trouble go away, their political problems go away. That's who Trump, uh, Crump, Benjamin Crump is talking to. Uh, let's see. So the state's going to railroad this officer. I, I, I would think so. That's, that, that's what I would infer their intent is on this evidence. 
knowing that when they get to trial, they have to disprove self-defense beyond any reasonable doubt. I, I just, they're, they're using the process as the punishment and they're hoping for that 10% chance of getting a wrongful conviction. Uh, was the judge up for election? Um, I don't know, right? I, it feels to me like a politically expedient decision by the judge. Crump is an extortionist. That, that could be one word uh, for what he does. He would say he fights for civil rights of the weak against the powerful. All right, folks, I think, uh, let's see, I got through all the questions. Um, and uh, I think that's all I have for today. So thank you, all of you, for, it's only Law of Self-Defense members here now. Thank all of you for your support. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that support. It's what makes all this possible is you, you happy few band of brothers uh, who, uh, through your support, enable me to do this uh, for a living. And thank you very much for that. Miss Emily, thanks you very much for that as well. Uh, and until next time, at this point, I will simply say, remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, that's why I carry a gun so I'm hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain attorney Andrew Branca for Law Self-Defense. Stay safe.